The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Mary Otto. She is the oral health topic leader for the Association of Healthcare Journalists. She began writing about oral health at the Washington Post, where she worked for eight years covering social issues, including health care and poverty. She is based in Washington, D.C., and she is the author of a nationally appropriate book titled Teeth, The Story of Beauty, Inequality, and the Struggle for Oral Health in America. Welcome, Mary. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I've had the pleasure of knowing you through the Association of Healthcare Journalists, and I know what good work you do, but I didn't know exactly what a great writer you were until I picked up a copy of your book, which I was thinking as I was reading it, who is the audience? I'm always thinking about that from a reader's perspective. And I think anybody with teeth should be someone who would sit down with this book. It is riveting. And we're going to talk about how you got started with this. So how did you become engaged with this particular health topic? Well, Melinda, I got into this topic by just sheer chance. I was working at the Washington Post in in 2007, and I found myself at the the hospital bedside of this 12-year-old boy named Diamante Driver, And it turned out he was dying of untreated tooth decay. He had an abscess in one of his teeth, and doctors told his mom that the uh, infection had spread to his brain, and he'd had two brain surgeries. He was in the hospital for about six weeks, well, a couple of different hospitals, and his care cost a quarter of a million dollars, but ultimately he died of complications of that decayed tooth. And he was a, a Medicaid beneficiary. His mother had actually been trying to find a dentist to give his younger brother the care he needed when Diamante got so sick, but it was really hard to find a Medicaid dentist in their community and just tragic consequences. Mm-hmm. And he is certainly just one of many children suffering. I had no idea just how many children and adults go without dental care. And it's so ironic, isn't it, that we're having this conversation because as a dietitian, I preach good food. I don't think there's anybody out there that hasn't heard about how critically important diet and food is to preventing chronic health. And yet there's some sort of disconnect between the foods that we need to eat to be healthy and the teeth by which we we are allowed to chew and ultimately digest and absorb those nutrients. So in reading this book, I was really surprised to read just how many people are living in poverty and how few people have access to dentists. So you write that one in five Americans are covered by Medicaid, but very few dentists nationally accept Medicaid patients. 
Why is that? Well, you're right, Melinda. You said it very well. Over 70 million Americans, children and adults, are covered by Medicaid now, and it can be very, very hard to find a dentist, as in Diamante Driver's case. Fewer than half of dentists participate in Medicaid. They they complain that the program in many states doesn't pay well enough for them to afford to take Medicaid patients. They complain about the paperwork. And in many cases, too, Dentists don't even work or live in the same communities that Medicaid patients live in and work in. Dentists, you know, they're healthcare providers, but they also consider themselves, in most cases, small businessmen and women. Most of our care is provided out of the private practice system, and, and dentists tend to open their offices in places that will, you know, offer them a good return on their investment and their education and their equipment and their staff. So, so there are Plenty of dentists in a lot of affluent, you know, metropolitan areas. In fact, in some places they compete for your business. But in thousands of communities across the country, actually they're home to 49 million Americans, according to federal statistics, there's a shortage of dental providers. So it can just be very hard to find a dentist in in many places in this country who will see you, especially if you're on public insurance. Mm-hmm. Medicare, you mentioned the difficulties with the importance of teeth and just eating. And Medicare, which covers, you know, over 50 million retired Americans, has never included routine dental benefits. So when you retire and you get Medicare, you if you don't go out and find some dental benefits and purchase them, you will be dentally uninsured. And millions of retired Americans are dentally uninsured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you write that children are entitled to dental care under Medicaid, but often face difficulties obtaining services, that fewer than half of dentists saw any Medicaid patients in the majority of states included in a 2010 study by the U.S. Government Accountability Office. You would think that, and I don't know, maybe I'm living this illusion that there's some sort of ethical behavior or thinking when someone enters a healthcare profession. So, for example, if someone in poverty goes to the emergency room, as financially inefficient as it is, nobody is turned away. But if you go to or try to get into a dentist, and I loved you, you have a a story here where there was a study where people called dentists in Illinois pretending to be mothers of children who had chipped a tooth and how difficult it was for them to find dentists who would see them if they were not covered by private insurance. But if they were covered by private insurance, they could get in easily. I think in over 97% of the cases, they were able to find care. Why isn't the ethical component or some sort of requirement made in dental schools such that there is a responsibility to serve everyone. Well, some dental leaders have raised that issue. Patient selection is something that I understand is fairly unique to to dentistry. But you're right; they dentists can't ethically turn away a person due to you know gender issues and different things like that. They have to at least give them a referral. But as people I talked with made the point, critics of the system have made the point that dentists can turn away a person for lack of ability to pay, it is different than other kinds of health care in many ways. 
Yet, as, as you pointed out so well, getting oral health care and maintaining oral health is so important to our overall health that it's a strange disconnect in the system. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I love the way you bring in historical aspects of dental care into this book as well as present-day situations. And you have quotations from people that I quote regularly, one of whom is Thomas Jefferson, and he says, without health there is no happiness, and attention to health then should take the place of every other object. And then you also have a quote from Hippocrates, which I think is fascinating. We always think of, well, I always think of Hippocrates as drawing attention to food as being, you know, the first medicine. But he also said that we have to focus on the removal of the primary causes of disease. What would you say is the primary cause of dental decay in the United States? That's so interesting. You know, they call tooth decay, which is the most prevalent chronic disease of American children and adults, according to federal health officials, it's a complex process. For years, we kind of looked at it in a more reductionistic way when Willoughby Miller was doing his famous studies of of oral bacteria, you know, a hundred years ago, he, you know, he zeroed in on uh, on a few kinds and a few strains. But now we are understanding more in just most recent years of, that, in microbial terms, the mouth is is being seen as an ecosystem, you know, with its own intricate ecological niches, and it's got organisms as as numerous as the inhabitants of the earth and microbes live in relationship with each other and tooth decay and gum disease, which is another very common oral disease, or they're understood to be driven not by like a single type of bacteria, but by consortia of organisms and a biofilm. So there's this balance that's going on. The oral microflora can live in a state of dynamic balance or the balance might shift due to diet or some other factor and upper opportunistic bacteria the chance to dominate and open the way to disease. So we're learning more and more all the time that I read one striking study where a researcher suggested that we could think about tooth decay as as almost like an ecological catastrophe on a very minute scale. And it brings back the points about diet and other factors too, though, not just what we eat, but how the pH balance in our mouths, the amount of saliva we have. I mean, our teeth, our saliva actually helps our teeth remineralize and hundreds of medicines that we, that many people take, they're very common medicines, cause dry mouth, which makes the oral cavity more prone or, or vulnerable to disease. These are all things we're learning more about. Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating. It is, and I think that your point is very well made about so many drugs causing dry mouth, and I think about the Medicare situation where, again, we have an aging population in the United States, many of whom are entering Medicare and lack of dental coverage, even though as we get older we 
we're assumed to be taking more medications that can lead to the dry mouth. So ever more or ever greater the need to have access to dental care during our older years. But, of course, the whole prevention side starts during childhood. Yes. And I love the statement about the ecosystem. In fact, there was an analogy to a coral reef, which I love because <laughs> it's also used in bone health, you know, thinking about the structure of teeth and bones similarly. I want to talk about, though, the idea of children not getting preventive services in a world where they are heavily targeted by sugary sweetened beverages. And from my perspective, you know, avoiding sugary sweetened beverages Mm -hmm. is one of the biggest messages that I gave as a dietitian to kids and Mm -hmm. to their parents. But a lot of the focus, while it is to some degree on tooth decay, the biggest message we hear is about obesity. So talk to me a little bit about the tooth decay and soft drinks and efforts nationwide to bring that message home and to get preventive skills into children's classrooms. That is such a great point. And again, I feel like this gap, you know, in understanding, in our own personal thinking about our oral health and in kind of state and national approaches to providing oral health, the message gets lost in that gap. But you're right, it's oral health and obesity are there's some quite a few common risk factors, and one of them is diet. And sipping on a soda all day long is just devastating when you think about your oral health. It's just this constant bath of sugar that prevents the teeth from ever being able to remineralize themselves, and, and the, the balance shifts, and, and it gives these more destructive kinds of bacteria a foothold, and the decay process takes place. And marketing of these beverages and junk food is quite aggressive. It really takes its toll, particularly in communities that have a lack of access to healthier options. You see tooth decay in very rural Alaska where they fly in crates of soda and there's a shortage of water, particularly, you know, optimally fluoridated water in a lot of these communities. The decay rates are so severe in these places. Plus, there has been for a long time a shortage of good preventive care in these places, too. So it's just the the worst possible conditions for oral health. Oral health literacy is another really important point that you raised. And helping young parents to understand that they should never put a baby to bed with a bottle containing anything but water. You know, people try to comfort their children with bottles of sweet juice or other things, and it's a very destructive habit. You know, it it doesn't give the children a chance to have their first teeth come in in a healthy way, and the decay process can trouble them for a lifetime. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. I was at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting, I think it was a couple of years ago, where there was a health department representative talking about the Flint, Michigan water supply and how the children there were going to have to be followed more closely for obesity because parents were assuming that soft drinks were safer to drink than the lead-contaminated water. But there wasn't any mention of tooth decay. So I think that we really need to 
refocus our attention. Certainly on body weight is, is very important, but absolutely on the destruction of teeth from swimming in these sugary beverages. I need to take one moment and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, my guest is Mary Otto. She is the author of a spellbinding book titled Teeth, the Story of Beauty, Inequality, and the Struggle for Oral Health in America. Well, Mary, I want to jump to the beginning of the book. It's interesting, and I I wonder how you decided to structure the story exactly. You start out with a woman who is on her way to becoming Miss Maryland, and the first chapter is about beauty. And here is a woman who is beautiful. She wins the pageant, but one of the gifts that she is offered is a free trip to the dentist for work on her teeth. Tell me about what happened to Miss Maryland. Oh, yeah, this is the story of Miss Maryland. Yep, Miss Maryland, USA, Mame Ajay. She was, I met her at this beauty pageant that she won. It was her first pageant ever, but she just had a lot of natural grace and charm and and just captivated the, the judges. And I was surprised to find out that one of the prizes she won and, and the prizes that these, that the winning pageant contestant won were all to help her prepare for competing in the Miss USA pageant, which was a few months ahead. And, you know, new gowns, new eyelash, you know, extensions and jewelry and shoes and $10,000 worth of cosmetic dental treatments. So, she made her appointment to go to visit these dentists who were the pageant smile sponsors. And even though she had a smile that was beautiful enough to win the Miss Maryland USA pageant, they found more work to do on her. She got Invisalign braces and teeth whitening services. And then they trimmed her gums to con, they contoured her gums so her teeth would look longer. All for the, in preparation for the national pageant that she was headed to. So so she was kind enough to let me follow her through these cosmetic procedures that she was having as she was preparing to go on to Miss USA. Mm-hmm. And just to let our listeners know, if you jump to the end of the book, you'll find that she came in fourth place in the national pageant. Yes. Despite all of that painful tooth work. And it was painful for me to read it, through a woman's lens to see how vulnerable she was, to think that, well, yeah, I just won the Miss Maryland pageant, but I could be more attractive. I need to do more. So there's that perspective, but also just the money that is being made by dentists to do these cosmetic procedures. Yeah, cosmetic dentistry is a very big part of the dental system in this country, I couldn't find out exactly how many dental procedures are done that are purely cosmetically oriented, but the best data I could come up with concluded that about 80% of dentists in this country do at least some cosmetic procedures, and they're, you know, elective procedures. Americans pay for them there's a booming business in these medical credit cards that allow people to pay for these procedures. 
And the cosmetic dental boom took off in the 1980s, about the same time that all these other kinds of cosmetic surgeries became so popular. And now you can watch shows that have these extreme makeovers, and they include smile makeovers sometimes that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, so, yes, it's very, very lucrative aspect of dentistry. Yeah. Well, speaking of the lucrative nature... I am in the chapter titled Separate Lives, and you describe a gentleman, Roger Levin, who is doing some coaching for dentists on how to get people to buy into these lucrative dental procedures, working as a team with your hygienist to help the hygienist use the right words and the right language to get more clients and to increase how much a dental practice can make. You know, he said, yeah, you can have a dental practice where you're bringing in $650,000 a year, but hey, $750,000, you could, you could do even better than that. And I found this, these power words that he talks about to be really offensive in terms of manipulating people to spend that kind of money when the flip side, which is also so well described in your book, talks about people who can't even afford to take care of a child's toothache. No, I mean, yeah, on one hand, you see this creating demand for these elective procedures, and yet, yes, the same system is failing to reach so many people with, with just routine care that they really need just to stay healthy, you know, just basic care. And a lot of it is is preventive care, you know, just real simple and inexpensive procedures that can help save teeth and prevent disease. The whole system does incentivize these more expensive restorative procedures and and the elective procedures over the prevention. And that's a serious issue. Dental hygienists who are trained to provide preventive care in many states have fought for and won the ability to go out into schools and nursing homes and other places to provide some of this care. You know, to get to people who maybe can't get themselves to the dentist's office, like children and elderly people and disabled people. But those efforts have been difficult in many cases. And the expansion of, of hygienists and other kinds of dental workers into New settings in the community have been hard-won victories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned nursing homes because that was another area where you describe in the book how I can just imagine being in a nursing home, perhaps maybe having had a stroke and lost the ability to speak or the ability to communicate about a painful tooth, and the access to someone who would come in, even if it's a dental hygienist, to review the health care, the dental health of individuals living in nursing homes is also scant. It really is. I mean, nursing homes, people who work in nursing homes spend their lives, their days, you know, providing care for the bodies, you know, the patients they take care of. They clean them. They turn them. They bathe them. But oftentimes, again... The mouth of the patient is not is not attended to. You know, if toothbrushing falls to the wayside in the daily routines, and it's really important for people who have a loved one in a nursing home or 
visit nursing homes or care for patients in nursing homes to remember, to remember the oral health of patients. And often, yes, if you are, you know, if you've been a victim of a stroke or something else, you, you can't brush your own teeth. People have disabilities that prevent them. But there are simple adaptive ways to help provide people with care or help them take care of themselves, even in a home setting. Just remember to find out about those things mm-hmm. and take and help people take care of them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to put the ball in your court and ask you to bring forth any particular issues that you raise in this book, and there are many, or were there any aha moments for you, you know, parts of this book where you feel there is a great need to bring forth to our listeners? Well, as I worked on the book, this thought kept coming back to me, and I apologize if I've made this point already, but there's this kind of dualism, you know, in the way we think about our oral health and our overall health personally, individually, and collectively, and it's reflected in in our healthcare system and in the ways that our federal and private programs treat oral health and in the way we care for ourselves sometimes, too. So... I think we just all have to re-examine our imaginations and remember to think about oral health as part of overall health. And it's very important in these coming days as this debate is going on in Washington about the repeal and replacement of the Affordable Care Act and possible changes to very serious budget cuts and changes to the Medicaid program. You know, if history is any indication, dental care always gets kind of sidelined in these conversations. It's important to keep our eye on the ball and remember that oral health is part of overall health and to keep that in mind as we follow these conversations and talk about our health care system. Yeah, and I want to emphasize that in terms of the arguments that we hear for expanding Medicaid and providing expanded services under Medicare benefits. The argument I always hear is that, well, it's too expensive, we can't afford it. But earlier in our conversation, you said that the young man, Diamante, his dental care, his full costs that even resulted, that didn't save his life, were a quarter of a million dollars. I think back to the old Stitch in Time Saves Nine, that we must put our efforts towards prevention. And if there was ever a book that proved that argument, it's this book, Teeth. Well, you're right, Melinda. You make a great point. I mean, about at least a million people a year go to emergency rooms with toothaches. And, of course, they don't find the care that they need for those problems in an emergency room. Those those visits cost the system about a billion dollars a year I mean, routine, timely care in a dental office or clinic could solve all those problems for so much less. And you're right, these tragedies still occur. Well, your book, Teeth, The Story of Beauty, Inequality, and the Struggle for Oral Health in America, is a tremendous contribution to understanding oral health care. 
It's also a riveting book. So if our listeners are part of community one reads or book clubs, I highly recommend this book as a way for us to come together as a community, one nation, undivided, for the care of our teeth. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Mary Otto, who is the author and healthcare journalist about oral health care and the author of Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Mary, thank you for this book, and thank you for being my guest. Oh, Melinda, thank you so much for having me. 